Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. yesterday a couple of um, survey outcomes that were released. One of them is the Public Religion Research Institute. They do an annual survey that's called the American Values Survey. So I was reading the American Values Survey 2020. Uh, Maybe the top line um, issue there is, is frankly how much the numbers have changed in four years. And so Um, People actually have a more positive outlook on the future than they did four years ago. People actually see things uh, generally um, more – they think that things are going better for them. It's an interesting uh, sort of assessment in the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And um, I have no idea if it's uh, indicative of how the election is going to go, but that is obviously the uh, tea leaves that people are trying to read today. Um which reading tea leaves is not something we do because it's just based on pure superstition. So there you go. Um, The other thing that I read yesterday, and I want to comment on briefly here before we bring Mark Caleb Smith on, um, is is a civic engagement survey. And it's done um, frequently by the Tiller Civic Engagement um, Group. And they they basically are interested in marketing. Okay, so that's that's what they're trying to do. So they're trying to. Uh, figure out what Americans are valuing right now in order that they can then help their customers market to those um, to those trends. Well, I read it for other reasons, right? Because I am interested in actually knowing what do people value. When we talk about values, we're talking about what we value. So just pause for a moment. And if you were answering a values survey, first of all, what are the kinds of things you would expect to see on it? Um, And then if we're going to talk about values like truthfulness, what is the follow-up question? In a culture like ours, the follow-up question is, well, what is truth? In some cases, the follow-up question is, who's truth? So if we are uh, if we are taking this these survey results at face value, which, you know, I have no reason to believe that. the survey, which is done year over year over year, uh, is somehow, you know, this year not accurate. So Americans have always strongly valued the uh, the character of the person that they elect as president of the United States. Character still matters. That might be the that might be the top line takeaway. That's still true. Americans still strongly value uh, character when it comes to the election of a president. Here's the challenge. So if you were to read, Americans strongly value a candidate's truthfulness. What is truth? Like, that's not just a question that was asked to Jesus 2,000 years ago um, by, you know, Pilate. 
That's a question that is worthy of asking today in the cultural conversations that we are having, where so many people think that truth is whatever they determine it to be or um, whatever the preponderance of evidence that promotes the narrative that they want to imagine is actually happening. So truth used to be that which aligns with reality. I mean, in reality, that is what truth is. Truth is that which actually describes the facts of the matter. But facts are fictionalized frequently in the contemporary conversations uh, of American culture. And so when Americans strongly, when Americans, you know, are surveyed and say they strongly value a candidate's truthfulness, uh, let me suggest to you that the dividing line on who's telling the truth um, falls in various and sundry places these days. Americans strongly value a candidate's respect for the military. Americans strongly value a candidate having a vision for the country. Well, there's no question that both candidates this year, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, each of them have a vision for the country. No question about it. They're just very different visions. Uh, Americans strongly value that people would be treated with respect. Um, On and on the list goes. Okay, so when you think about character and you think about the character qualities that you insist upon having in in a president, what are those? And does that influence or how does that influence or how much does that influence how you're going to vote? And maybe you've already voted. So there you go. All right. That is my lead conversation question for today, because it is a good conversation for us to have as people who are seeking to cultivate the character of Christ in our own lives um, and live it out in front of others in such a way that our culture would be transformed. You have to know what the truth is if you value truthfulness. You have to know what love is if you value, uh, you know, people being love, loving. And you have to value grace if, or you have to know what grace is if you value people being gracious to one another, treating one another with the respect due the dignity of image bearers. All right, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University up next. We'll be right back. Mark Caleb Smith is back from Cedarville University. Mark, welcome back. Carmen, how you doing? It's good to be with you. I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, all right, so um, let's uh, let's start with early voting. A lot of people have already voted. The early voting is very robust in the community where I live. Uh, let's just talk about early voting, and I don't know your maybe your sense of um, at at some level the the election is already decided. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it's a remarkable event. I mean, we've seen an increase in early voting over the years. I mean, more access I mean, gives people more options, and they're more willing to use those options. But it seems like this year we're seeing a pretty significant increase even in, in that. Uh, interesting evidence, though, you know, based on survey data and based on sort of reading uh, information that's available, it looks like right now Democrats have a pretty significant advantage uh, in the early voting process, at least for the president. Um, early data indicates they have a two-to-one advantage in first-time voters that are voting early. Um, and also they have a, a significant advantage in what we call infrequent voters. So people who don't vote that often uh, are starting to turn out to vote in these early voting process. And so Democrats right now have to be feeling relatively good 
uh, about how early voting looks for them. But I think they also know that Republicans tend to do very well on actual day of election voting. And so even though it looks good for Democrats, certainly nothing nothing is settled quite yet. All right. And then there's a you know, constant or frequent challenges being raised or questions being asked about the processing of absentee ballots. Um, in many places, those can't even be opened until Election Day. And then the process through which that particular envelope and the interior contents of it has to be processed is quite labor intensive. Um, there's a bit of a race for uh, a cure in relationship to all of those things. You want to talk about that? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this should make us feel good, right? I mean, if we have a system in place where you can request a ballot by mail, uh, then it needs to be a fairly significant process to submit that ballot, you know, just to to get rid of fraud as much as we can. Uh, But that also means it's easy to make mistakes. And so even if you're not trying to be fraudulent, uh, you can just make make poor choices or or not just complete your ballot at all. Uh, the most common mistake that people make is that they don't put their signature uh, on their ballot. And so it requires a, sig- a signature. That signature has to be matched with the signature that's on file. Um, and if those signatures don't match or if there's not a second signature available, then the ballot just simply doesn't count. Um, you know, in the 2016 presidential election, there were about 300,000 uh, rejected presidential ballots across the country uh, because people just simply didn't fill out the procedure or complete the procedure properly. Now, 300,000 sounds like a big number. It it is a big number, but it's a pretty small, it's a very tiny percentage of of all the ballots that were cast. Uh, But it it goes to show that this can be a difficult process for some people. Uh, In some states, they do have a system in place where if you make a mistake on your ballot, uh, the government will actually contact you. They'll be in touch, they'll give you a phone call, and they'll say, you know, you have a problem with your ballot, you have a chance to, to fix this, um, over the next week or now two weeks. And if you get it fixed, then the ballot will count just fine. There's usually an online procedure where you can go and verify some things and they will go ahead and then count your ballot. But not every state is like that. And so I think for voters uh, who are doing this, just be very careful. Make sure you read the directions carefully um, and fulfill the directions. And that's the best way for your ballot to count. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith in just a moment. Um, We're going to preview the second presidential debate, which happens this week in Nashville. We're also going to talk about court packing because uh, the way that is being described and maybe defined is um, seems to be evolving. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So the uh, the commission that oversees the debates here in America between presidential uh, candidates announced that um, the topics of the debate, the final debate, would be fighting the coronavirus pandemic, uh, American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and leadership. Uh, give us a little preview, Mark, of um, this upcoming debate, um, which is the second but also the final debate. Uh, prior to what is election day, but really has become election season. You know, it's interesting. I I think in some ways the topics that they laid out maybe aren't all that relevant. You know, as you and I both know, uh, when the candidate is asked a question they don't want to to answer, they just simply say whatever they want. Um, And so even though, say, something like Hunter Biden isn't on that list of topics, 
uh, President Bush or President Trump, sorry, will use that uh, any opportunity that he can uh, to insert Hunter Biden into the discussion. You know, that's been sort of a major issue over the last week. He's going to argue that Joe Biden is corrupt. And no matter what the topics are that the commission released, uh, it's going to be a main theme uh, for tonight and so, or for tomorrow. So I think that Joe Biden and how he handles those criticisms will really go a long way to determining what the outcome of this debate looks like. Yeah, President Trump has a really difficult road ahead of him, I think, you know, if the polls are anything to be believed right now. Uh, and this is maybe his last moment to really shake up the race in a significant way. Um, as you said, you know, we have a lot of votes that are already have already been cast. I think most people have already made up their mind. I think there's a vanishing number of independent or undecided voters. And so this is really President Trump's chance to make a difference. And I'm not sure I'm not sure he's going to be able to do it, frankly. I mean, I think he's got some obvious things he could do. You know, he could try to be assuring to people. He could try to uh, pull back on the interruptions. He could be a little bit more likable, probably, in his approach to this. But, you know, President Trump has never really been one to uh, be conventional in any way, shape or form. And so I think we'll probably see more of the same. And unfortunately, I would argue I'm not sure how beneficial that will be in the long run. Uh, to the American people. You know, I'm not sure we're going to learn a whole lot about either candidate or their visions on Thursday night. All right, let's uh, let's talk about court packing. Um, the term has been used maybe most frequently to um, to mean the addition of justices to the Supreme Court. Um, is that still what it means? Or are there people who, uh, you know, are using the term differently? Well, I mean, Carmen, you know, like with many pieces of language, uh, <laughs> they become subject to politics, right? And so there's a fixed mm-hmm. meaning in place, and then a political issue pops up, and that meaning becomes contested. And people start to argue that the meaning is a different thing for political purposes. So court packing is just the latest term that we've seen get thrown into the political mixer. Um, we, when we talk about court packing, we always think about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his effort during the New Deal era to pack the court. You know, the Supreme Court made some early decisions in the New Deal era that went against Roosevelt's way. They're striking down pieces of his uh, agenda. And he made this big boastful threat that he wanted to change the law um, so that uh, people who were over a certain age in the court had an option effectively to step down and to retire, or they could be uh, new places could be put on the court and then filled with Roosevelt appointments. And so he was arguing ultimately for an addition of six people to the court, which would have raised the number to 15 and given him six new appointments. And so that's what we, when we think of court packing, that's always what we talk about, creating new spots in the court, filling them with new members, um, and really trying to get different outcomes directly from the court itself. Well, I mean, since Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and since uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, uh, Democrats have been arguing that court packing really just means filling the judiciary with your preferred judges. And so they've accused the Trump administration, Republicans in the Senate, of packing the court uh, by mm. putting nominees on the court and then nominating even Barrett to fill Ginsburg's seat. And that, for them, that means court packing. Um, and that's frankly, you know, if we have any historical understanding of the term, that just doesn't pass the smell test. Um, and I try to be fair. I try to be objective. Uh, but this is just an effort for the Democrats to redefine a term just for their own purposes. 
So I don't even like the the reference to a particular seat on the court as belonging to any individual. I mean, it, right. it wasn't Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. I mean, if if Amy Coney Barrett is filling anybody's you know seat, any now deceased justice, it's probably Antonin Scalia, which means that you know the person who was elected when that seat was vacated didn't really fill that seat, but filled some other ideological seat on the you know, on the spectrum of the court. But anyway, um, the all kinds of conversations I think are going to emerge related to the Supreme Court, particularly if the Democrats are successful in, um, you know, in taking the the White House and and the Senate and hold all three and holding the House. And so, um, you know, they would have uh, they would have the ability to make changes that have not been possible maybe in the recent past. Um, I have heard talk that, you know, maybe there would be a change to the way the court is um, uh, to the composition of the court, like the way that happens or term limits or there must be a balance of nominees from, you know, uh, from particular parties. Um, How would any of that actually happen? I mean, is it all just talk? Well, if you're talking about term limiting the justices or uh, changing um, anything about their lifetime appointment or their appointment process, then you're really talking about amending the Constitution. Um, and there's just no way the Democrats are going to be able to do that through just a yeah, legislative Yeah, that's not going to happen. You know? no, <laughs> that's not okay, happen. So, we, so we can stop worrying about that. Are there changes? So. Yeah, so are there, well, and maybe this is a good future conversation because it's probably one that requires us to think, dig around and then think about. But, you know, are there changes that uh, if a party held both the White House and, uh, you know, and Congress, um, would there be changes that could be affected under one party's leadership? Yeah, I mean, they could they could they could do exactly what Franklin Roosevelt threatened. Yeah, you know, they could increase the size of the court. That's just a matter of law. You know, there's no constitutional requirement that the Supreme Court be nine. Mm-hmm. And so they could increase the size of the court. They could fill those appointments and that would change the court moving forward. And, and if they if they get rid of the filibuster, which they've talked about doing, if they get rid of rid of the legislative filibuster, then they would really only need uh, 51 votes in the Senate to do that. And that would be a pretty significant change to our system uh, with a very, very small majority in the Senate, uh, which would be uh, I think it would be a, a political bloodbath. You know, I think that would be a significant moment in our country's history. All right. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um do we want to talk? I don't know if two minutes is long enough to talk about hysterical punditry. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, man. What do you want to say about hysterical punditry? First of all, you might have to define it. Yeah, I mean, I, I try my best to avoid it. That's what I probably should say up front. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pundit. Hysterical not does not mean funny. In this context, hysterical does That's not mean correct. funny. Yeah. That's <laughs> Thanks for the caveat there. Yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly an industry of pundits who are really just out there to get fame and notoriety and and wealth and power. And for them, uh, punditry is really just all about being somewhat outrageous and getting attention. Mm. And uh, this is all over the place. It's all over television. It's all over social media. And this is creating a cycle. Um, you're outrageous. You know, let's just say you're outrageous about Mitt Romney when he's running for the president. You know, you portray him as a heartless capitalist that needs to be defeated at all costs. Well, then you come to Donald Trump, and then how? what kind of outrage machine do you use for Donald Trump? In other words, you get to this cycle where the outrage just becomes fatigue, and it just becomes meaningless almost. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. You know, I think the 2020 election 
is uh, revealing an awful lot of this hysterical punditry that you talked about. And I try to avoid it. You know, I try to be fair and objective and down the middle. I'm not doing it for attention or to please people, not doing it to get powerful or to get rich. Uh, I'm just trying to tell people what the truth is. And I think I think we should have more of that. But unfortunately, it isn't, it isn't always marketable. And that's really uh, the crux of it, I think. So I think it was back in February when Pew Research, uh, one of the survey questions that they that they, you know, used was uh, in relationship to people's fatigue related, just mm-hmm. people just being worn out. Sixty six percent of Americans in February were already February. Wor- were already worn out. So yeah, I got to I so got to think that. Yeah. Where are we now? If two if if two thirds of Americans were worn out by the not only the amount of news that was being disseminated, but the kind of news, this sort of, as we're describing it here, hysterical punditry, this, you know, <clears throat> flame-throwing kind. Um, uh, if two-thirds of us were exhausted then, how many of us are exhausted now? I mean, it's got to be well over 80 percent. And so well, it does make me wonder who is who is tuning in for the kinds of uh, debates that we are, I mean, that I'm kind of expecting to see if it looks anything like the last debate between the two presidential candidates. Like, I, it's it's hard for me to even gin up in energy to tune in, but I will because, you know, people here are not going to and they expect me to tell them on Friday what happened. <laughs> it will be my service to humanity that I will watch. <laughs> well, Perfect. and you hope the election brings some relief, but I'm not sure that yeah. it will. And that's the right. sad part. All right. Well, um, thank you for not being hysterical in the negative sense, but being uh, positively humorous in the uh, in the good sense and for being a pundit who is balanced on the issues of the day. We appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. I appreciate it. You take care. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. All right. I do love it when you guys uh, text me during the show. I am sorry that I missed the question from Jan about um, signatures on uh, on mail-in ballots. Okay, I I think, Jan, and I every state might be different on this. Um, My mom turned in her uh, ballot in Georgia, so she had to sign what's on the interior. She took it then to the election office. And the envelope itself is then countersigned by someone there. So it could be that the co-signature or the countersignature is actually on the ballot envelope. And that is not something that you have to um, make happen. That is something that um, happens as a part of the process. So you either mail your ballot in and then they sign it upon receipt. They sign the envelope upon receipt because they can't open the envelope. But that's to uh, to register it as uh, formally received. All right. Um, I know. I know I'm taking up time to answer questions from the text line, uh, Paul, but I think it's important. Um, Scott says, uh, worn out, you say? I am utterly exhausted. Uh, yes. Um, amen. Yes. Amen. <laughs> that is that is all I have to say about that. If you want to text me during the show, the number is 877-933-2484. Okay. Um, maybe, uh, well, for evangelical Christians, one of the concerns of greatest issue in the culture is the issue of abortion, abortion access, taxpayer-funded abortion, all of these conversations. For 50 years, the abortion debate in America has really remained pretty um, trapped in in what we might call uh, familiar categories of rhetoric. Uh, every Everybody thinks they already know, you know what the other side has to say. We don't actually listen to them. Uh, consequently, we've, we've become pretty much deaf to one another, and, and therefore nobody's being convinced of anything. 
Well, enter a new generation um, who share the concern for life, but they would like to see the debate change. They think there is good reason um, to believe that the debate can change. Diane D'Souza Gill joins me next to talk just about that. The book is The Choice. The conversation is really about changing the debate about abortion in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Technology has an amazing way of influencing teens, doesn't it? Whether it's the internet, a tweet, a podcast, a YouTube video, or a text, kids are exposed to more ideas than ever before. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The flow of information and the increase of data won't stop in the future. Our kids will never be less exposed in the days ahead. And since teens will always behave like teens and the information will keep pouring in, moms and dads need to shift parenting styles and keep up with the times. So mom and dad, don't fight the trend. Go with the flow and make sure these cultural influences don't overshadow your effort to raise healthy and happy kids. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Danielle D'Souza Gill is young, and she is a commentator who lives in New York City. I, I mentioned that she's young because I think the shift in the conversation and the shift in the vision for the pro-life movement in America is going to have to come from someone like Danielle in, uh, in an emerging generation, because those of us who have been in this conversation for a number of years um, are pretty stagnated. So I'm excited to talk with Danielle today about her new book, The Choice, the Abortion Divide in America. Danielle, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. Yeah, so it's great to have you. So just yesterday, um, uh, PRRI, uh, Public Religion Research Institute, just released their American Values Survey 2020. Um, only white evangelical Christians even care, even think that abortion is a critical issue in America. Um, that tells me that you are right, that we have arrived at the place where the Abortion debate is really not a debate. There are two fixed sides. Um, nobody's really listening to one another anymore. And you really want to change that. Tell us about the um, sort of the inspiration and the goal of this book, The Choice. Yeah, well, so I think that my main goal was to start with the pro-choice arguments, start with the pro-choice myths, and then go from there. Because I think so often we kind of assume that people maybe um, share certain assumptions with us already um, and I think that it will really help the pro-life movement if we have kind of winning arguments on all of their points. And I felt like it would it would really help if they were organized in a way that was really accessible to people. Um, I also wanted to make sure the cover and all of those things were appealing, not as much of the, you know, pro-life um, kind of pamphlet silhouette look of the stomach, but something a little bit more fun. So, um, so yeah, I think all of those things will help us get our message out. Uh, so the the artwork was not lost on me. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, there There is a visual appeal to the book, but if you think much about the artwork that, that I'm looking at right there, there is a womb nature to uh, to what I'm looking at, which is very, very cool. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's talk about the legality. So abortion has been legal throughout America since, you know, the Supreme Court's 
ruling in Roe v. Wade in 1973. Uh, lots of conversations, you know, about, oh, if the constituency of the court changes, then it's, there's the possibility that the law of the land changes in relationship to that. It's one thing to change the law of the land. It's another thing to change hearts and minds. Can you talk about the difference? Yeah, I think that they are connected, though. I think that if we are able to overturn Roe v. Wade, and it goes back to the states, then, you know, certain states will be living in very different situations when it comes to abortion, because Roe v. Wade kind of prevents other states from putting any restrictions on abortion that they would otherwise want to, that they would otherwise be able to vote in. So um, I think that would just be the first step, but of the long-term solution is changing those hearts and minds. And um, I think that can really only happen if people are able to know what abortion actually is and are able to discuss it. And as long as it's kind of seen as just any other healthcare procedure that is just as you know widely available at the nine at the ninth month in terms of abortion, then it's going to be just harder and harder for us to get our message across. So I want to get to um, you know allowing you to sort of talk through the style of the book because I do think the Socratic style that you use is uh, is really interesting and helpful. Um, and so let's do, maybe let's just talk about one of the myths that you address and how it can be refuted. So first of all, introduce people who don't know what it is to the Socratic process of conversation um, or debate in a stronger term. Um, but, then, but then unpack one of the myths. Sure. So the Socratic process is um, basically where you start with kind of um, a certain a certain statement, a certain view, and then you question it and go into, you know, what would be the response to that? How could you break that down or maybe uh, refute that argument on the other side? And so I do try to really put myself into the uh, position of someone who makes a pro-choice argument. Um, I'm trying to think which one to dive into. Maybe we can do the, um, you know, I'm personally pro-life but can't impose my views on another person. Yes, perfect. That um, was great. <laughs> Because it takes some some interesting mental arguments to make that one. Um, and I start by, you know, going into how this was a popular argument made by people like Mario Cuomo and other Democrats who kind of identified as religious people. Um, but I think it was ultimately just kind of a um, really a justification for doing this. And so even though they're saying that they don't want to impose their view on another person, in reality, they always are, but it's just on the baby that they're imposing their view on. So there isn't really a situation where you could say, I'm not going to impose my view when it comes to this kind of life or death situation. But I think, too, it just shows that if someone thinks that they can't impose their view on another person when it comes to this issue, they clearly don't think it's killing. They maybe think it's something that's not great or, you know, I'm not sure exactly, but they couldn't really define it as actual killing because if you know that it's killing, I couldn't see how you could uh, say that you don't really want to be involved. Or that you don't want to prevent it. You don't want to be involved right. in its prevention. Exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely. Physically. Yeah, not physically the, involved. Yeah, yeah the, other, the other conversation point that I, um, when engaged in this kind of conversation with a person who um, you know, who lifts that up. I, I wait for another point in the conversation where they do impose their view on me. And then I'll say, okay, so, um, so in this particular case, you, you feel pretty comfortable imposing your view on another group of people, whoever that may be. 
And, right. um, yeah. and then I say, but somehow, but somehow that's not inconsistent with what you just said 10 minutes ago about imposing your view related to the protection of life. Like I, I just go after the, the fallacy in the way they have constructed their own world because it falls apart if you, you know, start taking the bricks away. Exactly. That's another great point. You know, they have no problem imposing their views on us when it comes to a bunch of other things. And there are so many other things that I would say, oh, how come you're imposing that on me? Why are you imposing that on me? You know, but we live in a society of laws. And so um, there there are some that they're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to impose that on you. But, you know, why can't we stop the killing of babies? Mm hmm. Oh, exactly. All right. Uh, Danielle D'Souza-Gill and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. We have to take a very brief break. We are talking about Danielle's brand new book. It's entitled The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. And we'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Danielle D'Souza-Gill. We are talking about her brand new book, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. Um, Danielle, I have a number of people um, contacting me via our social media asking, what is your best or preferred social media for people to connect with you? Well, I'm Danielle D'Souza-Gill on all of them. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Parlor. So definitely find me there. All right. Dan- Danielle D'Souza Gill. Let me just repeat it for everybody. You know how to spell D'Souza. It's the way you've learned already. Okay. So, um, Danielle, talk with us. Uh, well, first of all, let me just do this. I had a conversation with a teenager the other day. She is pro-life. She um, uh, was wondering. So this is a this is a teenager wondering out loud why the president doesn't answer a question in a different way. And so I share it with you because I know you were on. Uh, President Trump's uh, uh, Women for Trump advisory uh, board. And so I'll just I'll just ask you this question um, and maybe plant a seed of an idea. So she's 17 and she said, well, when when the president is accused of, you know, not doing enough related to the coronavirus and, you know, the number of Americans who have died and it is tragic and we recognize um, the value of every single life. But part of the reason we value or recognize the value of every single life is because, frankly, we are pro-life. Um, and so she was wondering why the president might not re- respond to criticism by um, sort of teeing up his own statistics about how many American lives were terminated by the pro-abortion laws passed, supported and funded while Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. That's almost a direct quote from this 17 year old. Um, and then she wanted she wanted to see a, a instead of a coronavirus dashboard that looked at the numbers on the screen every single day, uh, state by state of Americans um, obviously dying of the coronavirus, she wanted to see a state-by-state state of uh, pa- places where people were accessing abortion. <laughs> so there yeah. you go. There's a different approach, and that's, um, you know, how a younger person is imagining seeing something brought up before her peers in a way that's different than the propositional arguments we've made in the past. Right, yeah. I do write a little bit about coronavirus in the book, just in the sense that so many Planned Parenthood clinics and other abortion clinics flouted the coronavirus restrictions when, you know, that certain states were in a lockdown and said we can't allow elective procedures right now. They continued to do them anyways, to have people in groups, to keep using PPE and all of that sort of thing. So to them, they think they're above the law. They can keep doing whatever it is that they want to do. But when it comes to the death number, I think 
probably the reason that he doesn't compare them in that way is just because of, like you said, every life is a life and, um, you know, is valuable and sacred. And so we wouldn't want to kind of dwarf the deaths of one compared to another. But I think absolutely. I mean, the abortion numbers per year are in the hundreds of thousands getting up to, you know, close to a million every year. So the deaths of, you know, due to abortion outweigh coronavirus for sure. Yeah, it's um, abortion, I I believe, still continues to be the leading cause of death in America. I mean, it outpaces every other uh, every other killer, does it not? Yes, it does. It's the leading cause of death. It's amazing. And and we don't characterize it that way or we don't often characterize it, or we don't hear it characterized that's what, that way. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your vision for a life affirming society. How how would the pro-life movement look if all of a sudden you were in charge of all of the messaging and the way we were uh, moving forward, um, you know, in terms of a pro-life people here in the United States of America? <laughs> well, I think that it would involve a lot of the thoughts behind it as well as the feelings. I know that many people say, you know, thoughts don't or facts don't care about your feelings, but I think that both are really important. Um, I think we have to have the feeling side and that we're always, you know, telling stories, reaching out to people. But I think as far as the fact side, we have to always make sure we have all the facts on every single argument, every single point. And I think if we have both of those, that is really how we could win people's hearts and minds on the issue. And also making sure that our actions are aligned with the things that we're saying. And I know that they are in the sense that there are so many who are running pregnancy centers and doing so much for other people. But I think that when we're kind of in this battle with the pro-choice side when it comes to especially how it plays out in politics, how it plays out in the courts, how it plays out in all these areas, sometimes we want to shy away from that because it's a very, you know, messy place and it's it's not a, a loving game. It's tough. And I think a lot of us are just, you know, would kind of rather not be in that place. But I think that in order to get to that culture of life, we have to get through this um, this battle that we're in now first. I like the culture of life language. Um, here we, um, on the program, we have uh, platformed a significant number of women, you know, who had abortions early in their life. It was a decision that they now um, deeply regret, uh, and they talk about it now in ways that I don't think anyone else is even capable of uh, of addressing. I mean, just last week, um, we had one of the women from Point of Grace on, and um, and she was talking about, you know, that reality in her past. And, you know, it was some 32 years ago now, but it is so fresh that, you know, when you begin to just scratch the surface of that conversation, the tears flow. This is life changing, not just for the person whose life is lost due to abortion, but the life of the woman um, who makes that decision and undergoes, you know, whether or not it's a chemical abortion or, uh, you know, or a DNC. It, it is the reality is there is a process that takes place in the body of the person and you are participating in um, the termination of the life of another individual. And you never get away from that. You never get away from that. Those are the testimonies we've heard. And it seems to me, um, Danielle, that elevating the voices of uh, of women and families whose lives and life together have been utterly transformed by the choice in one direction or the other, the choice to terminate um, a pregnancy or the choice to do the difficult thing. I mean, both both are difficult. Don't 
don't I'm not trying to underestimate one to the other, but to figure out a way to allow that life to thrive um, and either through adoption or through, you know, a family coming together and figuring out how to support that single mom, figuring out how to allow that person um, to live the life that God has granted them. Exactly. And that's why I, when people say, oh, is your book sad? Is it going to be a depressing book? I'm like, no, I include so many inspiring stories from people. And there are many inspiring moms out there and women who've really learned from that kind of situation. And even fathers as well. I think that fathers, unfortunately, get so left out of the debate. And um, the the other side kind of says, you know, we want men to be vulnerable and share their feelings. But when we actually dive into, you know, what breaks the hearts of men the most, it's losing a child. And especially due to something like abortion, when they have really no say in the matter. And a lot of them feel kind of this sense of PTSD, of helplessness, like they maybe could have done something, but they weren't able to. So I dive into that as well. And also um, abortion survivors in the sense of children who survived the abortion procedure. Some of them have um, unfortunate, you know, scathing from that, whether it's a disability or something, but it's just, it's just so crazy to look at the issue from all of the different perspectives involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. We've had Melissa Oden uh, here on the show to talk about um, uh, the reality of living as an abortion survivor. Um, Danielle D'Souza-Gill is the author. The book is The Choice the abortion divide in America. Um, Danielle, I expect that you are a voice we are going to continue to uh, to hear in not only this conversation, but others. So thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That's Danielle D'Souza-Gill. You can find her on all the social medias at that Danielle D'Souza-Gill. And her book is The Choice. We'll be right back. Well, I want to um, I want to tie up that last conversation that we just had by acknowledging that this is an issue that touches millions and millions of lives across the country, not only every every year, but over time, um, forever and ever. And so, if you um, are a person who whose story is touched by abortion one way or another, um, first of all, we want to say you are seen, you are heard, you are known, and you are loved. Um, and if you want some equipping, some encouragement to connect with others um, who are post-abortive or ministries to post-abortive people, please reach out. You can text me at 877-933-2484 or email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.